This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I am here with JJ Jenflown. We are both graduates of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. In the case of JJ, she's still going strong there and uh, for a PhD. And uh, today we're going to talk about questions. What type of questions are on your mind, JJ? Well, what am I doing with my life is always chief among my questions. But I think you mean specifically questions related to human trafficking <laughs> and not sort of my general questions of malaise. Um, and so for that, uh, what we thought we would do for today is sort of frequently asked questions we get as people who work in the human trafficking field. So, JJ, you have compiled a list of frequently asked questions. How many questions do you have? So it's 18 broad sort of questions with, I thought maybe we could end with us each suggesting a question that we get asked a lot that maybe wasn't covered in the list. So basically 20 frequently asked questions that people in the field get. Although I would want to be sort of clear and that these are questions specifically that I think Seth and I get as researchers. Primarily, I do do some responding, and I do have some clients that are survivors of trafficking. But what I'm, what these questions are primarily based on are people who do research. Someone who is a first responder or someone who is a service provider, maybe directly, might get different sorts of questions. But if you have questions about what Seth and I do and why we do it, this would be the podcast for you. Okay, so question number one. How is human trafficking different from migrant smuggling? Yeah, and I think this is this is a big one that comes up, maybe not necessarily, well, especially now in the news, especially in the U.S. context. But I think this comes up in different forms as well. I mean, certainly, Seth, you've had the question before, like, does, does human trafficking have to involve movement? Mm-hmm. Or what is the difference between human trafficking and, and smuggling or human smuggling? Are, are refugees fundamentally human trafficking victims because they're traveling? And, of course, the answer to this pretty simply is no. Human trafficking is not the same as migrant smuggling. Human trafficking doesn't actually necessarily require movement, you know, across state or federal lines. It's just that a lot of times smuggling and trafficking end up overlapping because you're dealing with people who are in vulnerable positions. Seth, is there anything you want to add on that one? It's kind of a nuanced thing. You and I have done a podcast actually devoted to it. But I just really wanted to make sure that that was clear. Well, there is usually one or more people providing a smuggling service where they are getting a person from A to B. And usually it's multiple smugglers. So if in the case of somebody coming from Guatemala, there might be somebody to get them from Guatemala to Mexico. There might be multiple people that get them across Mexico. But then what we tend to think of is the person that actually would get them across the border, in this case, the U.S.-Mexico border. So a person smuggling, they might be just doing what they're paid to do and getting a person across the border. They might be a nefarious person who is a trafficker 
who also happens to be smuggling, but in that case, he's not providing a service anymore. He's he's uh, doing it against their will. It's possible for a smuggler to hand somebody over once they're across the border who to a trafficker or for them to be trafficked at some point once they're past the border. And so most tr- smugglers are not traffickers. And the reason why then we'll say that there might be overlap is so obviously you can see that if, if you had to enter into a country via smuggling, that then your access to sort of the formal economy might be decreased, which could then increase sort of your vulnerability to being trafficked or being put into a trafficking situation. Also, if you've been smuggled into country, typically what that means then is that you don't have a sort of valid paperwork to, to be there or you're at risk of being deported back to your initial circumstance. And so if you are in an exploitative or traffic situation, you're not going to contact authorities. Okay, moving on to question number two. Is there a difference between human trafficking and slavery? The short answer is yes. Yeah, and a lot of these are going to be, I think these are questions that you and I are going to be like, we have a podcast on that. (laughs) Where, Where we've covered sort of longer more more detailed nuanced answers to this but yeah what is the difference between human trafficking and slavery seth for the for the men and women at home the main difference is that in slavery a person was legal property and that in human trafficking human trafficking is a crime where property rights don't apply and uh, it also, there are multiple forms of slavery. The, mo- the most common one is chattel slavery. That's what we tend to think of, which is what I just mentioned, is that a person was legally owned and that property was enforced by rule of law. Human trafficking is basically technically illegal all over the world. Including now Mauritania, which used to be the only place where mm-hmm. chattel slavery was still legal, but it is no longer no, and I think that that's that maybe is the easiest way to think of it is that slavery typically is thought of as being historical forms of what we would now label human trafficking. Human trafficking is a crime. Slavery was accepted. But I do you do see sort of, I think, a lot of uh, fluidity in the language when people are using it because there's still, I think, not necessarily like a great way to describe what all forms of human trafficking is. And so people see someone who's being held in debt bondage where it's families after, you know, for generations being held working for another particular family. And that does look like historic slavery. So I think that's where the can, the confusion sort of pops up, but the term now for what's occurring now in the world is, is primarily human trafficking. It would have to be legal for us to refer to it as slavery. Right, and we still use the language of buy and sell, which sometimes is accurate and sometimes is not. Like when uh, just doing a transaction to buy sex from somebody that's being sex trafficked, they are not being bought. They are in some sense controlled. They might have been purchased in order to get into the situation that they're in. But that purchase is not enforced by rule of law, so they're not legal property. 
And I think this is just sort of a general problem we have with language as well. We want to use sort of agency-focused language or survivor-focused language, but then what do we call people who are still held in bondage? Are they victims? Are they not? It's, it's just something that I think that maybe because this is still a relatively new field in terms of research or academia, we don't have direct language yet. Well, and that also, everyone has come to a consensus too. Our language is very Western-centric. Oh, and yeah. So in the West, we have very specific property rights where everything is protect. Like there's this big formal economy where property rights are written down and detailed. And the rest of the world outside the West does not necessarily view property rights the same way. And so in somewhere like India with generational debt bondage, that doesn't mean that they're going to see it exactly the way that we see it here. But what is the same is a, a person in the situation where they feel controlled and in some sense trapped or feeling that they can't get out of the situation. And that'll kind of lead us into the next question. Number and three. This is, this is one I feel like I get a lot, a lot, which is what if a traffic person consents? Is that and what people of, ask you at parties? No, normally they want to know how much they would go for is, is the first one. We're, we're a very capitalistic society. They want to know how much they could be sold on the open market for. And then I have to tell them actually not a lot. Okay. Uh, human life has gotten very cheap. So consent. But, but consent. So so what this there's sort of a bunch of nested questions in here. So what what is consent to begin with? And consent in this case is the giving permission for something to happen with full agency and awareness. So yes, a trafficking survivor or someone being held in bondage might have consented, say, to signing a contract for a job, or they might have consented to crossing a border for a job. They might have consented to even taking sort of fake paperwork or taking out a large amount of debt in response for a job. That does not mean they consented to be held in human trafficking, because you cannot sort of consent to completely giving away all future opportunity for your will. This implies that someone who is a victim of human trafficking has consented to have a crime happen to them that they can never get out of. And so it's still human trafficking, even if someone had maybe agreed to at particular portions of this action. Moreover, when we talk about trafficking, we talk about like actions, means, and purpose. And a lot of times that means is through force, fraud, or coercion. And if that happens, then you're not truly consenting, are you? Because you're not acting with actual full knowledge. Also, if we're dealing just really quickly, anything involving children, children cannot consent because they're not of legal age. So while this comes up in terms of even people who have been trafficked might feel a lot of guilt sometimes because they'll say, oh, well, I agreed to do X or I agreed to Y. It doesn't matter because ultimately they were taken advantage of in this very like fundamental, painful way. Well, in any job that you take, you don't fully know what it's going to be like. You don't know if the interviewer is being fully honest or is fully aware of what 
the job will be. Mm-hmm. And so we it doesn't mean by taking that job, even if you know it's going to be a hard job, that you then are giving up your right. Well, no, to do that job for forever. Yeah, you well, know, to, I, to I, deal I, with all sorts of abuse in that job. Like, that doesn't mean you want your boss to yell at you all the time or to beat you or 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 many or any other things that can make for a uh, bad work environment and in a normal work environment you probably can quit but as some of you can probably attest it's not always that simple even in the normal economy and when you have somebody that's going out of their way to manipulate and control you it's even harder in a human trafficking situation Number four, remember there was a game where number four was the question that cares, but that's not what it is this time. <laughs> no, Seth, is it only human trafficking if victims are transported across national borders? It is not. You do not have to be moved or you don't have to move across the border. And so one of the terms that's used is carboring. And then there are other words like recruitment, transportation, transfer, and receipt. That's the act part of the human trafficking law. And if you're the person that is just on the receiving end, if you're a person that is harboring the person somewhere, if you're a person recruiting somebody to be trafficked. So while there often is some sort of movement It could simply be that somebody took a job to be a domestic servant in a home, and it might have even been that initially, but then it became a human trafficking situation over time. And in that case, the person has not been technically recruited for the purposes of trafficking or received or transported or transferred, but they have been harbored. And one of the things, too, that I think ends up sort of shocking people when we have these conversations is this idea that people can be trafficked within the home as well. If you are being controlled and sold as a item by your parents, then you are trafficking. And so, number five, how widespread is human trafficking anyway? So this is why I'm super fun at parties, because human trafficking is everywhere. Lurking in your neighborhood, do 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 do, and I think this is sort of one of those things where people who primarily are thinking maybe of chattel slavery as the primary form of human trafficking don't realize that human trafficking happens in every country. It happens in every town. You get numbers that are so wildly varied about number of human trafficking victims per per year or number of trafficking victims that exist in the world. I've seen everything from 2.5 million to 40 million. Crazy number differentials there. I would say probably the one that I follow the most closely is one that Free the Slaves gives credit to, which is 40 million, because they're also tracking people who are being exploited within migration. And that, to me, just seems actually like the higher levels seem more appropriate. But... So you've got human trafficking, though, happening in factories. You have it happening in hair salons. You have it happening in restaurants. You have it happening within the home in the form of domestic helpers. 
You have it happening in the form of child soldiers and in the form of child marriage. It happens in the commercial sex industry. It happens within cell phone creation. It is everywhere. And so in terms of prevalence, if you're looking around your home right now at things that you've purchased or things that you own, the food that you eat, it is likely that at some point at least some of these things in your home have been touched by people who have been trafficked. And relating to that, number six is which countries are affected by human trafficking? And the answer is all of them. But like JJ just said, it's not just where somebody is trafficked, but that we're affected by it too because of slave-made products. Yes. That we we have a supply chain for, for good or bad, and that a portion of the products in that supply chain are made with exploitive or or worse labor. And then I think what maybe changes the only thing that for that question that can change is maybe where is trafficking more easily seen versus where where is it not seen? So in certain countries and certain areas you might actually see maybe trafficking more out in the open in the form of, say, if you're in Indiana region where there's a lot of brick making, you might actually then see debt bondage and that you'll see small children making bricks and things. If you go into a Foxconn factory in China, you might see something that you label as exploitative or possibly human trafficking just because you're seeing it. Whereas things tend to be hidden, I think, a little bit more a lot of the time in the U.S. context, unless, of course, then you go into the agricultural industry. Mm-hmm. So it's it's so different. Well, and with agriculture, there's lots of indicators. I mean, I've looked specifically at, at coffee data in uh, Central America, and it's exploitive. <laughs> there's really no other way to put it. It's exploitive, and there's enough indicators where you can ask for a number of people whether it's trafficking, but whether that's uh, people not being paid what was promised, whether that's unsafe working conditions, uh, whether that's having their identity documents taken. Like when you start adding up all these factors, at some point it's trafficking. But otherwise, it's just plain old exploitation, which is still a problem. Which is really one of the disturbing things here is when we're talking about trafficking, we're talking about the extreme form of exploitation, It doesn't even get into all the other forms of exploitation out there. Sometimes you can even, which you sometimes can see even in white collar work. So it's, it touches everything. But who would do such a thing? Number seven, who are the traffickers? Bad people. Question answered. Bam. Okay, no. You probably want some more details. So... Just like victims of trafficking could be any age, any gender, any socioeconomic class, any ethnicity, any nationality, the same thing happens with perpetrators. The only thing that I would say is that typically what we hear about are perpetrators being a trusted member either of the community or someone who is able to sort of push that trust. In the podcast we just published uh, with Wendy Barnes, it was someone who actually position themselves as as being a partner, as being a family member, uh, ultimately, um, a a spousal type figure. 
So when you do see someone involved in human trafficking who is a trafficker themselves, I would say that it is it is typically someone who one is aware that what they're doing is wrong but has decided that money is the most important and then it's just a matter of how can they best go about committing their crime. Now you do see depending on the industry and the location maybe that this is someone with particular ties to an industry maybe this is someone with ties to this is kind of skipping ahead maybe to a to earlier question but that is involved in organized crime specifically just because now increasingly if you're going to be trafficking someone say like actually if you are trafficking across border lines the amount of fake paperwork or, or detailing that you'll need is going to be quite extensive. And so the more people you have involved, probably the easier that's going to be. But there is certainly no, there's no picture I can give you and say, this person is what a trafficker looks like. Ellen, traffickers find some pleasure in controlling other people. Like they've got into the point where they can control and exploit and live with themselves and uh, like with some of the sex trafficking cases where they just as a matter of course when they have a new victim they rape them and to prep them and beat them and get them addicted on drugs and they just do that as a process but underlying all of it is you know control and profit and that's that's the big thing that's sort of the big takeaway is that the only thing I would say that's consistent about a trafficker is that they were able to gain the trust or the understanding of someone in a desperate situation long enough that they could commit the initial crime, but also then they were able to inspire enough fear or control that they were able to keep that crime going. And they may not be uh, big time. They might not make a lot of money. Various levels of trafficking. It could be an individual, it could be a syndicate. So what is question eight? Question eight is, how would I recognize a victim? Even though, is, yeah, even though trafficking is, in a sense, touching everything and in various places, identifying it isn't always so easy. So uh, maybe give the, the magazine crew example. Yeah, so we actually did a podcast on this. Again, the quote of my life is that we've done a podcast on this. So one of the things that pops up a lot is in magazine crews, you have kids maybe going or, or young teens going from town to town selling newspapers or, or trying to sell newspaper subscriptions or, you know, some other sort of paper. Yeah, magazines. Service. Yeah, some something. I've, I've seen it in all different forms. Sometimes they're like, here's a cleaning liquid. You know, like it's, it's Amway with slavery. Uh, so what happens in, in those cases is you're going to have a victim who looks very different than, say, someone who's been held in chattel slavery for, for years. But in each case, a manipulation has taken, has taken place where there's someone who's using power and control to gain material benefit from another person's time and labor. And so the the difficult thing is that there's no 
just like there's no one particular way that an individual looks like a trafficker, there's there's no real particular way that a person looks like a victim or survivor. The easiest way, though, if, if you're looking, if you're on the lookout for, for someone who might be being taken control of, is actually a list that's put out uh, by the Polaris Project, which is not necessarily behaviors that are on the individual who might be being trafficked, but an individual who is trying to traffic them. So specifically, is there someone always escorting or watching them? Are they not allowed to speak on their own behalf or are they unable to speak on their own behalf? So we see this a lot, maybe not necessarily with, well, actually with the magazine crews and that there's always someone in the car watching them or they don't have their own cell phone. They don't have uh, the ability, say if you're in a primarily English speaking country to, to speak English, that sort of thing. They don't have any form of identification. So we've seen this actually pop up when we've talked to people who work in maybe in the hotel industry or people who work in nightlife, or people who work in emergency rooms who say, well, people come in and they don't have any form of identification, but there's this other individual who might produce their ID for them, or they might speak for them. And certainly, I mean, you and I, Seth and I both lived abroad. When you're doing maybe a difficult medical thing, you're going to bring a friend who can translate for you, but I've never given my friend my passport to hold for me during that process. Uh, also, an individual may be really unfamiliar with where they are. So if you kind of ask them, you know, like, do you, do you know what town you're in? They might not know because it's not uncommon for people to be moved around quite a lot. And then there's, there's sort of the physical signs. Does someone look scared? Does someone look malnourished? Does someone have a lot of cuts or, or bruising? You know, in Denver in the last couple of days, it's been over like 100 degrees. If I see someone working outside and they don't have appropriate equipment, and they clearly are like very deeply sunburned and they don't have water, that's an indication to me that something might be going wrong. And then maybe sort of the easier one is that obviously if, if they look very young, if, if they look, you know, obviously um, one of the times that I've called in, actually in the tip line, is that there was an eight-year-old doing some like very serious janitorial work. And as someone who went to work with her parents as a kid and did stuff, like maybe it was that, but it just it got a weird vibe. So you will see sort of a weird mix of things. But these are all things I think not necessarily related to the person itself, but sort of things that are foistered upon someone who is held within trafficking. Yeah, and one but a victim can be anything. It can well, be anyone. Well, one thing though with a victim is is victims don't always understand the situation they're in. They might be at the beginning of the situation. They might not define it as trafficking. They might mm -hmm. feel like something is wrong and not like their life, but feel like it would be risky to say anything because maybe they've escaped before and or maybe they've been manipulated and came back before like in our interview with Wendy Barnes, like that there's an element of psychological control and there's a lot of lies that might be told to any given victim. And so for them to recognize their situation and to know what, and to know how to get out of it, to know that if I trust you or if I trust this cop, they will take me out of this bad situation and they will understand and it will get better. 
there's no guarantee that a victim sees the world like that. And so even asking them, are you being trafficked? They might not know. Or they might deny it. So recognizing it, part of it is is just awareness. And, uh, you know, for me to realize that people, you know, doing hard labor on this, you know, on a house, on the yard, people, people selling magazines, everything might be fine, but it might not be. And just, just to be aware that everything happening around you might not be fine and that somebody might be being victimized. And this, I think, then pops into a question that I didn't, I didn't put on this list, but that I have gotten before, which is just, do, do people have to ask you for help? You know, do, do victims of human trafficking normally ask for assistance? And the answer is no. A lot of times because they're unable to ask and they're scared, and then sometimes because people aren't necessarily aware of the situation that they're being held in. Yeah, and we'll we'll mention the the hotline uh, later. But uh, you know, if you sense a situation, you don't know what all is going on, most likely, and so it could be dangerous for either the victim or yourself to try to deal with it. And so it's often wise to call a trafficking hotline or to call law enforcement, since uh, they can deal with these situations easier than you could. So just try to be wise. And we are going to be talking about what you can do. Yeah. At the at the end of this. So number 9. Number 9. Number 9. What is the most commonly identified form of trafficking? This I feel like we've talked about a lot and it's sex trafficking. And I think the reason why it's more present is because it's something that maybe law enforcement can find it a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier to identify than some forms of sort of labor trafficking, at least in the Western context. Right. Uh, To uh, paraphrase it another way, prostitution and sex trafficking, there's more of an alignment. Sex trafficking can occur in other situations, but that when you have something like prostitution, which is generally illegal, then if somebody identifies prostitution and there's somebody being trafficked in that situation, well, you're, you're already looking for something that isn't legal in the United States, generally, the few, yes. ex- few exceptions. Whereas if they're in a factory and you're trying to see, okay, is this person in a state of trafficking? Well, they have the illusion of an official business that's not illegal. Same with agriculture. And in agriculture, it's hard because you don't ever have everyone in one factory. You, you have them spread out, and it's often uh, in various rural areas, some of them very far from the main cities and so on. And, and so trying to identify it can be very difficult. And so we you know, identify sex trafficking more easily than labor trafficking. 
Though, as we say, sex is also a form of labor. Exactly. But there is actually, as we pointed out before, there is a legal definition between, you know, legal differences between the two. And so then that impacts the statistics as well, because then you'll see maybe there'll be a sort of maybe a more prostitution focused sting operation and everyone taken in that sting will be recorded as being a victim of human trafficking when there might in fact be a mix of people who are there for by, by choice. Okay. What is question 10? Well, question 10, I think, kind of deals with that directly, which are when we're dealing with victims and and culprits of human trafficking, is there overlap? Who are the true victims and true culprits of human trafficking? Can there be overlap between the two? And this is sort of a complicated question, but I was recently asked this when I was in, um, I was giving a guest lecture to an undergrad class. And they pointed out a number of cases where former victims had become traffickers. And then so is, is that an individual a trafficker or a survivor or a victim? What, what are they? And the answer is they're both. But I think if you look back at our psychological coercion podcast, what you'll see, you as a, as a listener, I don't need to tell Seth this because he's amazing and already did the psychological coercion detailing quite extensively. But if you look at that history, then what you see there is an individual who has been very much controlled or or broken down by a system that has harmed them so fundamentally that they may view trafficking or more specifically, they may view what their trafficker tells them to do as the only form of proper survival. So what that leads to then is someone who in adulthood, say if, if they have been trafficked maybe into the sex industry as a child, when they become an adult, when they become older, might actually work with their trafficker in other areas of the trafficking project, maybe in finding new people to victimize. And that's their form of survival because where are they going to go if they don't work with the trafficker? They have no family. They maybe have a criminal record. They have no way of making money. They have no education. They have no legal paperwork. So what what else are they going to do? How else are they going to live if they don't participate in this system? And in a very sort of maybe simpler way, we see this mentioned um, when we talk to people who have uh, survived tremendous abuse as children. It's this idea that your normal meter is broken, what you would use to define what is acceptable or unacceptable as an adult is is fundamentally different from the norm. The problem is that this is an individual who then is still committing a crime, and this is an individual who is still then victimizing other people, and so they do need to be punished for that, but the answer is that you can be both, and that's a very complicated thing, I think, for people to grasp that there's these mitigating circumstances that exist there. Yeah, and the degree... Like their degree of authority within the structure and, and so on. And uh-huh. and this goes back to chattel slavery, except in that case, it's not a crime. It's just morally wrong, unless you're pro-slavery in that day, in which case you didn't think it was morally wrong. But you, you had foremen who would oversee slaves who were, the, were slaves themselves. And yes. if you have normal employees, they might have scruples. 
they might have hour restraints. They might so there might be things they might not do. They might not stay. Whereas if you're making one of your slaves or traffic people follow orders and abuse the slaves under them, for for some traffickers that works better. Uh, sadly. And, and and also you have people who when you're trying to survive and you're trying to get along and you're we've seen this in multiple stories sex trafficking brothels etc where they have to have some sort of community and so they latch on to the other people being trafficked and they might do things for them they might compete with them they might look out for them within the little bit of control that they have and sometimes that might mean aiding the exploitation. And so it gets really, really messy. And that, to me, I think was one of the hardest things to grasp is when we heard a number of times from a number, or at least I've heard a number of times from people, I thought that if I stayed and I took over, I ran this particular aspect, I'd be helping. Because I at least know, as, as a former victim or as a former worker, I know sort of the insides and outs. So I'm better than a random foreman they pull off the street. This is a way I can ensure that the people who I work with can be safe. And so you have people in, in very difficult, rough situations. And again, I remind people that for, for a lot of the people, not just in the world broadly, but in the U.S., they don't necessarily view law enforcement as a individual, they, as, as a person that they can go to for help or for safety. The one other variation to explicitly mention is uh, the people who later have nothing to do with their trafficker, but who become traffickers. Yes. And in that case, yeah, that's a whole separate. Yeah, but you know, in that case, they're responsible for what they did. I mean, they have to be, even though they're scarred from the experience. It's just. Uh, a really sad outcome when that happens. I think that that's actually one of the harder things when you're in this field to, to see and to do with when, when someone who you, who you really want to help you see victimizing someone else or, and sort of this, for me, it's, it's the cycle mm -hmm. of this terrible thing happened to them. It's this terrible thing has happened to their parents and their grandparents, but it's going to continue happening possibly. And that's, that's a difficult one. Okay. To, to reconcile your brain. But on that happy note, let's go to, to number question number 11, uh, which leads, I think, very well into question 12, so maybe we'll combine them. But are human trafficking victims only foreign nationals or immigrants? They are not only foreign nationals or immigrants. However, foreign nationals and immigrants are ones who tra uh, traffickers often target because they are vulnerable in a number of ways when they're in another country. And I was also just going to say, I also think it's, it's, it's sort of similar to when we talked about sex trafficking is that sometimes, you know, if someone who clearly is not from your neighborhood moves into the neighborhood and is acting in a way that not as the norm, I think it's far more likely for sort of the, the little old lady who lives on the street corner to pay attention so then I think people get picked up a little bit. 
more often or, or sort of end up on law enforcement's radar a little bit more often that way. But uh, in, in thinking of uh, various forms of capital, so you have money capital, which gives you power and influence, and social capital, where uh, the, the relationships that you have that give you a place to stay, that uh, place to get advice, that you depend on your network. And there are a lot of immigrants when they're coming into, this con- into the United States where they have some network somewhere. But it's limited and people do not always get where they are planning to go. And uh, some of the challenges for people from one country going to another, they don't understand all the laws. They don't understand all the language. They don't understand all the customs. So when somebody is lying to them, they don't necessarily know. They don't necessarily know who to trust. And there's just degrees of vulnerability that make a person easier to exploit. And so why trafficking so often does cross borders is because that's how you put people into vulnerable situations. And again, then all of those other vulnerabilities, I think, are more present when you're sort of in a new context or you, you don't know the normal, you know, I certainly don't know what the daily wage is. So people that uh, were trafficked into Malaysia to work at factories where they work with one labor broker who promises them one thing, then they get across the border and another labor broker tells them something else, put dumps them at a factory and suddenly they see the contract and it's a different contract than they originally saw. And suddenly there's all these other fees they weren't expecting and they're in another country and they, they may or may not know initially what uh, their official status is going to be. But then they're finding out, oh, if I tell a cop, I'm going to be deported. And uh, if I don't pay this, I'm, you know, if I don't do all these things, then X, Y, and Z are going to happen. And so then they rough it out for a period of years and and uh, may go back to their home country empty-handed, feeling ashamed, and not even tell their family what exactly happened. And that that scenario is quite common. So I was just talking about individual labor brokers in that case, but uh, the next question, 12, is the what is the role of transnational organized crime in human trafficking? And this is something we've touched on, I think, already, and that you were sort of leading into pretty directly, which is, in a lot of cases, it's necessary for there to at least be some overlap, if not sort of complete control by organized crime, only because of the sheer amount of people involved, the papers involved. If you need multiple sort of documents filled out, if you need a border guard to be on your side, those are those are all things I think that are going to have... It's helpful if you then have organized crime with their with their fingers dipped in if you will and organized crime groups that are transnational which for us uh 
we think of Mexican cartels, which are really transnational. They have a lot of money and they make a lot of money, not just from drugs, but from trafficking and providing other services. And so shutting them down is really, really hard. And there have been examples within Customs and Border Control for the U.S. of people who've been bribed. And that's happened a number of times. Why? Because cartels have a lot of money and make a lot of money. And there's a point where it becomes attractive. And people can be resold. And so they they are a way to make money. And I think then you also see a lot of the presence of, there are places too, which I don't maybe people necessarily realize in a Western context, where your government's not going to help you. Or there are no government services available, but there might actually be, in the case of a cartel or an organized crime group, someone who is providing those services for you directly, who who is also a criminal. And that is complicated. In our podcast where we talk about sort of Chinese triads and, and mass human smuggling rings that happened of Chinese nationals into the United States, you saw reports of individuals who even after uh, a smuggler, her sort of inattention or her, her greed had led to the deaths of numerous people who, who were trusting her to transport them, that the community still actually really viewed her as an essential member because they felt that the government wasn't adequately, adequately addressing their need to, to lead the country. Also, human trafficking does not just occur uh, between ports of entry. In other words, it yes. doesn't just occur illegally. It also occurs through official ports and airports. Mm-hmm. In that case, it's a crime that happens through legal means. But of course, tons of drugs also pass through official ports of entry. The latest stats I've shown still show that most drugs still come through official ports of entry. Shutting down transnational crime when you also have an economy that is sending products back and forth between the nearby countries makes it really hard to deal with all forms of trafficking. Yeah, it certainly complicates the matter, which I think then takes us into our next question, which is how trustworthy are the statistics? It depends. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Well, I remember watching a presentation by an FBI agent and he said, we know 80 some percent of trafficking is sex trafficking. And his reason was because 80-some percent of what they caught and prosecuted as sex trafficking was sex trafficking. What's the problem with that statistic? If you're looking for a specific thing and you arrest only for that specific thing, it's, it's correlation is not causation, basic 101. Sherlock Holmes is mad at you. Mm-hmm. And it's also that trafficking is not always prosecuted as trafficking. Because law enforcement wants to get people off the street 
and you know we we think that's a good idea too so you know we we're glad that they can use non-trafficking statutes to get traffickers off the street but that does create a data problem very much so very very much so and then there's also two victims of trafficking as i think is is recorded in, in our wendy podcast when she's talking in her book don't necessarily sometimes they're prosecuted but it is it's not realized that they're they've also been victimized and that's a difficult thing right and sometimes they're sensational like the super bowl statistics which we did a podcast on yeah which detailed sort of how that's a nonsensical stat but it gets trotted out a lot i've definitely had people ask me about it a lot in person about what you know why don't why doesn't the field talk more about this thing that happens all the time well because it doesn't it's not real but it, it it pops up and if it's real in sort of the public consciousness then you'll definitely see it repeated and so I think maybe this, the secondary part of that question is, well, what do we do when we know that the stats aren't great? What do we do? My, my response has always been, we, you've got to try to find the best stats humanly possible and, and when in doubt, err on the side of transparency. So we don't know necessarily, but this is what we think and why. And that's complicated because I think a lot of times people want yes and no answers. And we don't have those a lot of the time. And, and that makes fundraisers, that makes politicians, that makes, like, your grandma, um, Dr. Phil, makes people upset because they want a very particular answer. But you're, you're tied. You know, what are, what are you going to do otherwise? So I think, I think you just have to sort of be as clear as you can and, and be very upfront with people. Well, and beyond awareness and making people jump out of their seats and be startled or afraid, uh, stats aren't always useful in terms of actually ending human trafficking. Like having some stats that are consistently collected and analyzed, I mean, so that you can see some trends, those are, those are useful. But, I mean, ultimately it's like where are we... How are we going to use the stats? Are they going to help us figure out where to put our resources? Okay, well, then that's a valid use of stats. Making people say, oh, we need to spend more money relating to the Super Bowl because it's the Super Bowl. It's like, well, there's, other, there's other places the money could be going. And it's not that big events like the Super Bowl don't have problems with trafficking. Major events do because you have lots of people but it takes money and attention away from like sheep herders in colorado and other situations where we could use the focus and the investigation and i think that there's no there's no hierarchy of suffering here a, a victim is a victim is a victim and they have to be given attention which maybe that takes us down to the next question again, which is what type of industries are involved in human trafficking, which I think we've pretty much answered, which is all of them. But because this is, this is industry-wide, this happens in every country, in every town, it happens everywhere. No, that's, so that's pretty much it, is just that I think people, again, want an industry, you know, it's the tomatoes. They're the problem. 
it's the fast fashion. It's the lipstick in- industry. You know, I think, again, it's an issue where people want a very specific answer and there's no specific answer to be given. It's it's all industries. The only thing I suggest for people is to look at things that are made exceptionally cheaply, uh, primarily sort of heavy plastics or import items that are very uh, cheaply made and consider the fact, you know, if I'm buying this T-shirt for $3, how how is the company making a profit? And it, it's very likely that they're making a profit by very cheap labor at, at some stage down the line and also very cheap maybe cotton and, and other resources. And well, where is that coming from? Cheap doesn't necessarily mean trafficking by by any means, but it's it's sort of a little tool I use for myself to check. Also, you know, this whole going zero waste movement, very popular right now. All your friends will love it. You'll be super hipstery. Get in on it. Okay, so next one. How is pimping a form of sex trafficking? Or even is pimping a form of sex trafficking? So this is a complicated one. I Well, wait. What is a pimp? Okay. Uh, Well, I was going to sing a Beyonce lyric, but then I decided we get sued, and so I'm not going to. But I'll just let that linger so y'all can enjoy it in your head. So here's, here's the deal with pimping. The idea is that a pimp is an individual who is controlling another individual and helping them sell their sexual services. Typically, it's, it's a man who controls prostitutes. He arranges clients. He gets a portion. There can be women who do this as well. Sometimes they're called a madam. Sometimes they go by pimp. I think it's a very like sort of gender open option right now there is actually if you're into human trafficking specifically from a sex trafficking field there is there are a number of books that came out in the 60s called pimp the story of my life they're by a pimp called iceberg slim they hit i think sort of a lot of attention on amazon because dave Chappelle talked about them in one of his specials but they're very interesting because they're actually the memoirs of a pimp so if you want to hear it from the horse's mouth i i would highly recommend reading those ones but anyway so the idea is that a pimp is someone who sets up clients uh controls the labor of another individual and receives a portion but then they also provide protection so if you have a client who's not paying you they come to beat them up if client tries to hurt you they protect you yeah so the way i see it is that if you have a pimp that you have entered into an open and respectful contract with where you say you're going to arrange things for me as sort of a go-between i don't see that as trafficking i see that as no different than me going for for a booker or a manager for for my labor or my time if however though this pimp is forcing you to do things you're uncomfortable with is taking the majority of your earnings is controlling you via force fraud or coercion then that is a form of trafficking and i think that that comes down to debate that still exists within the field which is, is all sex work a form of sex trafficking? Well, and even answering that is problematic because sex work is such a broad term. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people use erotic service provision more mm-hmm. because then that, I think, encompasses sort of more of the in-betweenness or sort of the, the comfortable uncomfortableness of sort of trying to define what is a what is a sexual act? What is not? What is an intimate sexual act? What is not? 
but so the answer then is sometimes. So so a pimp certainly can be a part of sex trafficking. They can certainly traffic an individual, or they could be someone that you're engaging in uh, a valid commercial switch with. For example, I would say you know maybe people who who go into contracts with broth- brothel or escort agencies where the the brothel or the escort agency will provide you know the screening of clients the setting up of the clients and the control of the clients for maybe like a 10% off the top fee is that trafficking if it is if you can't leave i think or or if you don't have control over what services you are providing but there are plenty of people who would fight me on it Yeah, and so for us to to be able to differentiate, like regardless of whether one what one thinks about prostitution, uh, and you know prostitution even when it isn't trafficking, there are situations where it's exploitive. There are people who seem to choose it and have agency and make a good living, but yet in most of the U.S. it's not legal. But if there's force fraud or coercion in that situation and there's commercial exchange of of money or something of value, then in that case, it's trafficking. Question 16. Do many traffickers get caught and convicted? (laughs) Conviction is hard because the weight of evidence for a criminal case is high and there are uh, things that can change and it's why DAs like to have um, multiple laws and uh, such in order to get somebody off the street. There's also, I think, the added point that even when people are convicted for, for in a lot of cases, the human trafficking sort of like the actual time you'll serve in jail is small. For the most part, you're certainly not going to go to jail except in very unique circumstances long term. Well, and collecting evidence can be difficult. I mean, you might be able to get a survivor to testify, hopefully, but testimony will only get you so far. You need corroborating evidence. Not enough get caught and convicted. And that's when we're talking specific trafficking. When you have other things like wage theft, which is the various ways that you can not pay a person all or part of what you owe them, that happens even more often. And we've definitely talked about this before too in terms of for foreign nationals trying to get visas to stay in country. It's very difficult, and I think that that kind of underscores the the issue. Yeah, so that's depressing. So you, down, down tone, but let's get up. What can we do to fight human trafficking, Seth? Can we fight it? Can we win? We can fight. We can definitely fight. We can go fight win. Uh, one of the big things that you can do, one, educate yourself. 
it's always great. Two, I know that we, we trotted out a lot, but there is the hotline, which we will link to again. But if, if you see something, say something. If you have sort of a weird feeling, say something. It's very important that you not say something directly to the person that you think is, is being harmed because that can put them in, in a very dangerous situation. It's important not to confront who you think a potential trafficker is themselves. But you can always call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, which is 1-888-373-7888. They also take text messages, which I think is actually great because sometimes you can text but not talk and that is two three three seven three three and you can send either help or info they speak over 200 languages there they'll be available to answer questions for you you can also email at help at human trafficking hotline.org they're wonderful they're 24 hours a day um they're, they're great. The hotline is always wonderful. In terms of you can actually leave a tip. You know, what what do you think is going on? What, what do people need? What can you help with? But I think education is the big thing. Knowing that when you're out paying attention, what can you do? How, how can you help? That, that's a big thing, I think, honestly. Like, what, what can I do to help? Pay attention. Report when you're concerned. Make sure that people are getting paid a fair wage. Those are, those are the biggies. I don't know, Seth, any other ones that you would recommend, but those are always kind of the ones that I fall on. I mean, think about your purchases. There's only so mm -hmm. much you can do, but try to do something and uh and part of that can be when you buy from sources that you know or or you buy locally i mean that's one reason to buy locally um i don't think it's practical to think of buying everything locally and nor is it always better like just because you're buying locally doesn't mean that the business owner is treating his employees well doesn't mean they're putting out a good product but if you are looking locally you have there's a chance you can actually know that mm -hmm. you can actually talk to people you can observe whereas a factory in china it's going to be really hard to observe and unless uh, of course that's where you live and what you do right because some of you might live in china but but I also do. call your you know your life call your congressman be specific, like say, why haven't you reauthorized the TVPA? So in my case, like, I, like I've said, I, uh, I contacted three of them via email and two of them didn't respond and one of them had, gave me a confusing re reply, which means I need to keep doing it. I think it's also an issue, too, where, and this again comes up in, in what I think is maybe one of the best podcasts we've done, the Wendy Barnes podcast, but also in, in the podcast we, we did earlier in last year with Elle, which is listen to survivors. And when survivors tell you that there's a thing that they need in terms of maybe services after they've been quote-unquote rescued or that they need 
law reform. L listen to them. Don't assume that, that you naturally know all of the answers. So, JJ, one of the things you mentioned was the National Human Trafficking Hotline. So what happens when somebody calls that hotline? That is actually one of the questions I get the most, I think probably because I, I throw out that hotline so much, and they're like, but what actually happens? And by the way, you can actually apply to be a volunteer for there. I should have mentioned that when we were talking about what you could have done if you're interested in helping. So what happens is that there is like a specially trained advocate. So someone actually answers. You talk to a real human being. It's confidential, so you don't have to provide your name or any info. But they ask you a couple questions just to see like what sort of assistance you need. You know, are you someone who's currently in, in a situation yourself? Are you someone reporting on a situation? They do ask for some details for the sake of, of recording, like your your name, your your preferred gender, your preferred language, your location, that sort of thing. Uh, but they do consider themselves sort of a multidisciplinary, like, down for everybody. And then they kind of slot it into four categories that they provide follow-up work for. So are they providing you sort of general support and recommendations to, to get to safety? Are they connecting you to, to local services? And those can be, like, legal or social services. So they do have contacts uh, across the world that are local. Are they making a report to law enforcement directly or are they talking about like technical resources and they don't do anything without your consent. So unless they think that your, your life is on the line or if, if there's a child involved. So if you just want to call them and talk about the sort of concern that you have, they will certainly listen to you. They're basically sort of a standard hotline. They're not a government entity. They are not immigration. They're not law enforcement, but what they will do is they'll hook you up with direct victim services in order to provide you with, with, with the best care humanly possible. So in this case, say that you're not someone who's a victim yourself, but you're someone who's providing a tip. So the tip is reviewed, it's evaluated, whether it should be passed on. If it's evaluated to be passed on, it either goes to local, state, or federal investigations or service industries. They then pass it on. So the more information you have, the better it is. The only thing there is that you're not going to get updates on that because that's obviously private involving someone. Uh, that is not you. So, you know, you can't just kind of call and pop up. But they're, I think that they're phenomenal in terms of their referring. And they do... One of the things maybe I should classify is that they are primarily U.S.-based. They will take international calls, but if you have an international concern, there's actually an international hotline that you can contact. It's called the Global Safety Net, and that's run by Polaris. Which is a really great, great resource. But you can contact them through email and internationally, and then they will actually handle the referral process. But so that's what happens. You make a tip, they investigate, and then they refer the appropriate agency on, like an appropriate trusted agency on. So it's not like you're calling immigration to report a victim of trafficking. You're actually calling the experts in the field who know sort of the questions to ask, are, are familiar with the situation, and know how to move forward with that. All right. Bonus round. JJ bum, and I bum, each bum, get a question. Bum. 
Yes. So my question for you, Seth, is what is a question about human trafficking you wish people would ask you, but they never do? Now, the one that's really coming to mind is what type of border approach will either help or worsen human trafficking? And I, mm. I kind of see this at, at work on uh, Facebook and Twitter. And, and uh, one way to frame it is, well, doesn't lax border security allow a bunch of traffickers to get people into the country and traffic them? And so won't a hardline approach make that harder or eliminate it and therefore eliminate trafficking? Well, no, but it's complicated. And it's partially complicated for all the reasons we've already mentioned. But in order for traffickers to get caught, people have to be willing to report it. And so when people are afraid to talk to law enforcement in immigrant communities, then that doesn't help. When people are being demonized, and there really should be no dispute about this. Donald Trump is demonizing people, uh, both that come here legally and illegally. Asylees apply legally, so refugees come legally. So when people are feeling marginalized, when people are already having it hard and have already experienced trauma, And it, it it can be harder to, let's see, when people have gone through all of that, it's not going to make it any easier to identify it, especially if we're taking a prosecution approach where identification is not very important. Uh, I mentioned recently to somebody who's been following border, border policy for the past few years, and they had never heard of a T visa or a U visa. T visa is for victims of trafficking, a U visa for victims of crime. And most people have never heard of them. And we, we don't give out anywhere near our allotment, partially because identification hasn't been a big priority really ever. There's also the other things that we've already mentioned is that trafficking is not just a cross-border thing, and it has a lot to do with vulnerability. And so a hardline approach can make people more vulnerable, and it can make the journey more expensive. It can make it more expensive once you get here. It can make it more expensive if you've been here. So it's all these ways where a hardline approach can worsen the situation for people who are susceptible to uh, situations where uh, of trafficking. So will this end trafficking? No. Even if you close, but, even if you, if it was possible to close our border, which it isn't, but if it were possible, trafficking would still occur. It would still occur through ports of entry potentially, but it would also still occur within the United States for people that are already here. All right. How about you have a question for me? What's the second biggest question you get asked at parties? <laughs> uh, can you actually get a job with that? 
Uh, and the answer is yes. Yes, you can. Will it necessarily pay what you feel that you're worth? Probably not. But the thing about human trafficking is I think that it's it's very niche and that you can apply what it is you otherwise find yourself being an expert in or interested in to helping end human trafficking. So for me, I love research. I love teaching. Becoming a professor who, who deals with, with human trafficking makes sense to, to me in terms of that goal. But then to focus more broadly within human trafficking on other things I'm interested in, like refugee movements and gender and East Asia, all of those things can kind of combine into sort of a big stew. We've had a number of different people as guests in the podcast who work in the human trafficking field. But the the big thing that I think that is so difficult for people to understand is that you, you will have to sort of dig and, and look for it. And maybe within your own specific industry, carve out space and time to talk about human trafficking. Uh, we will eventually have uh, our good friend Stacy on. She's confirmed. She just, she travels like a crazy person and she is a healthcare professional but has carved out sort of a, a little area for herself where she does healthcare and human trafficking awareness and treatment simultaneously. So you can certainly make your way in this world. It's just, but you're going to have to be, I think a little bit of an entrepreneur with it. The jobs don't fall out of the sky. I would also, if you do want to work in this field, maybe don't do what I do, which is did rather, which is one night I got really wine drunk and I wrote a letter directly to Ashton Kutcher and his Thorn Agency outlining all of the issues I had with their methodology. Maybe don't do that as a general rule, but, uh, you know, do, do, do what best suits you. you. There's certainly a job, but that's the question I get asked the most is that are, are there actually jobs in, in that? And I think there's sort of this idea that pops up or this idea most people have that in order to do this, you need to be in, in law enforcement maybe more directly, and that is not the case. No, but we do need people in healthcare and law enforcement and other fields who are truly knowledgeable about trafficking and the nuances of trafficking and victim identification and uh, what it's like to be coerced into um, coercing other people and just the complexities of it because it it's, it's an underground crime and having people who know how to identify victims and perpetrators. I mean, that can be useful knowing how to uh, deal with trafficking survivors and, and how to help them in, um, in aftercare starting more aftercare programs. And uh, if you read Wendy Barnes' book, you, you can just see some of the case managers she worked with and uh, some of the people who oversaw parole and how they had disparate views of people like her. Yeah. And uh, if you understand the situation, then maybe you can be more useful to somebody who's been through a trafficking situation. So educate yourself, uh, check out Polaris and others, listen to our podcast. Donate to Survivor Services. Yeah. Bam. Start where you are. And if you have questions, send us 
send us more questions. We'll add them to our frequently asked questions. All right. That is it for today. Bye, everybody. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.